is a Mario Bava film, widely considered to be one of his best films. It's called Kill Baby Kill. Um, and uh, we're hearing from uh, Leon Hunt, who is uh, a lecturer at Brunel. And Leon has written a lot of really uh, uh, kind of cool stuff on trash cinema and trash aesthetics mm. and cult cinema. Um, and uh, his most recent book is coming out soon, so he's going to talk to us about that later. Uh, we're really excited to have him on the podcast. I was going to say British Low Culture. That was British one of the Low first, Culture. Um, one of the first books that I really uh, sort of got into when I was very early in my master's degree. Yeah. It was so helpful. I came to it when I was at kind of PhD and thought, yeah, because the, the idea of like looking at cult cinema or trash aesthetics and thinking about those value systems. Uh, was really interesting um, so yeah super excited to have him on uh, so uh, before we before we bring Leon on though I wanted to kind of uh, get your response to the film Adrian so I mean I, I really uh, really enjoyed this I mean I think it's on this podcast it's it's kind of unusual for us to talk about a film that is widely regarded good. it's really odd for us to talk about a film that is a regarded as a classic of cinema mm. Um, yes, although as as was the case with many Barber films, it wasn't particularly at the time, also in terms of its distribution model. It was just kind of shoved out and given lots of different titles and put on double bills and triple bills and things like that. It, I guess with a lot of Barber, it only seems to be sort of later that people think, oh, yeah, actually, it's pretty good. Yeah. But it is good. Yeah. It's a really interesting film. Very visually stylish. Yeah. And um, lots of, and I think we'll probably talk about this with Leon, very influential, potentially, with its sort of ghostly girl um, who sort of is a harbinger of doom, uh, has echoes in a lot of other stuff, I think. Yeah, there you can see that kind of trope playing out across a lot of um, cinema from different countries, like uh, the whole kind of... In Kill Baby Kill, there's this traumatic event that happens. This young girl is murdered and she comes back from beyond the grave to kind of enact revenge. And the way she does that is that she um, she kind of makes people hurt themselves, kill themselves. Mm. And um, like this is something that you see in stuff like uh, Ringu. Um, that's essentially mm. exactly the same storyline, isn't it? So that's kind of Japanese cinema. And it's something that you could see in stuff like Village of the Damned. And actually the girl in Kill Baby Kill has blonde hair and is very sort of creepy and haunting. So it's very much kind of like that kind of aesthetic. Basically, mm -hmm. the haunted creepy child is, is, is something yeah. that comes up again and again in horror cinema. Yeah, it's one of my favourite horror tropes, I think, scary children in uh, in horror cinema. Um, and also the, the thing that this reminded me of a lot was um, The Woman in Black, Although in that film it's the mother rather than the child, but it still sort of hinges on this traumatic event and the death of a child that could have been avoided. And the ghost, when, if you see the ghost of the woman in black, then you're doomed. Um, yeah. And people, she makes people kill themselves in horrible ways. And it's for, for a, a low budget mid 60s film, some of the violence in here is quite shocking, I think more so than it would have been in say a hammer film of around the same yeah, time it's genuinely if i yeah if i compare it to a hammer film like it's genuinely eerie like i watched this film late at night and i was like actually this is quite scary <laughs> watching it on my own i didn't expect yes. that because you know it's a horror film from the mid-60s but it's 
just mm. very atmospheric. And I think like yeah. partly that's due to, I mean, it's, it's kind of like, I kind of like that it's so low on dialogue, um, but so kind of big on uh, visuals. So like instead of having, you know, instead of being quite heavy on exposition and like having two characters talk to each other at length, explain things, what we get are these like really cool slow pans and zooms and um, mm -hmm. tracking shots of like characters behind bars and things. So you, the film sort of creates a story visually and you get the sense that the visuals are kind of more important than the dialogue in, in creating that story. And it also gives yeah, it a really yeah. atmospheric feel, like a really creepy feel. There's a great shot that we see several times of a spiral staircase and people either going down the spiral staircase or coming up the spiral staircase. And then towards the end, the camera starts spinning as it's looking up. Mm. And the whole thing is just going round and round and round. And it reminded me, I mean, we see the spiral staircase, I suppose, is another thing that's used a lot in films. But in, it reminded me of Mildred Pierce, uh, the film noir that's got a sort of spiral staircase. And this guy's running around it as he's going, as his life is sort of spiraling out of control. Mm -hmm. And it seems to be symbolized by this spiral staircase. And in this film, it's like they're descending into something weird or they're, they're entering this strange world. Yeah. It's very well done, and the way with the lighting and everything is really <clears throat> like I suspect that maybe Hitchcock's Vertigo might have been influential True. here because that is also a good point. The, yeah, pans yeah. of the spiral staircase. Also, Mario yes. Bava really loves. It looks like a dolly zoom. I don't think it is, but really loves a zoom and then a pullback and then a zoom. Mm. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, especially I love that. There's that shot where we're in the bedroom of this murdered child, panning across dolls. And then all of a sudden, there's the kid just there, like one of the dolls, just staring straight at the camera. And it's genuinely quite alarming. Yeah. Um, but I did read something that, that sort of spoils that slightly, which is that Melissa Graps is actually played by a very cross seven-year-old boy <laughs> who who is the son of um, somebody that worked at the studio. And Maria Barber had been unable to find the right look. He'd, been, he'd, he'd, he'd auditioned several girls, couldn't find the one that he wanted. And so he put a wig on this seven-year-old boy and said, right, now's your chance to be in a movie. So, And the boy just got teased by everybody oh, for wear, wearing dresses. And he was also told never to blink when during a take, um, which is yeah. quite effective. I I can see, yeah, I but, can see why that would be effective. Um, yeah. I also read so, that like, the scenes, the way it was shot, like, I can't remember if it was about the kid, but I think it was. Like the, They got the kid to, to walk backwards doing yeah, right. doing the scenes yeah. and then like just played it forward so it looks like their movements are really like creepy and mannered so it kind of works quite well yeah which is a j-horror thing as well i think with the ring and like grudge and those kind of spooky ghost children yeah crew crawling along the floor kind of films um yeah there's so much going on in this film to recommend it i think um i like the cast as well i think uh yakamo rossi stewart he's always good value he pops up in a lot of films i first saw him in um there's a vincent price film called the last man on earth i don't know if you've ever I've heard seen of it. that one Not seen it. it's the what it's the film that hammer were going to make of i am legend but then the, the oh, BBC yeah. said no so they ended up taking the script to italy mm. so vincent price is the star of that but his best friend is this guy yakimo rossi stewart mm -hmm. who plays the doctor here and i i always really like him when he turns up in uh in movies i also wanted to have a quick shout out for the burgermeister with his completely shaved head 
he's really interesting looking. Yeah, he he's is. He's quite, quite a striking character. <laughs> and I think uh, apparently he was just the producer. Really? But they didn't have, God. They didn't, have enough mon- they didn't have enough money for all the actors. Jeez, all the decisions they made with this film based on budget. So, yeah. It worked out so well. Um, exactly, yeah. He just He's like, I'll do it. I'll shave my head. And then they just had to tell him his lines and then he would repeat them. <laughs> So, I mean, shall we um, shall we bring on Leon uh, yes. and hear more about the we'll uh, the film and um yeah and uh, chat about because he's actually written about Kill Baby Kill, hasn't he? In his forthcoming yes, book, he knows so, more about it. Yeah, than we do. let's let's uh, introduce Leon. <laughs> Uh, so we'd like to introduce uh, to the podcast our guest for this episode, Dr. Leon Hunt, Senior Lecturer in Film and TV Studies at the uh, Brunel University. So hi, Leon. And hi, welcome. Leon. Thank you. For coming hi, on. thank you. And we should congratulate you. Obviously, you're here because of the uh, your book, which has just come out. It's hot off the press, I think, only about two or three weeks ago yeah. on Mario Bava. But how could you want to tell us a little bit about how long you've been working on this as a project? Um, well, the funny thing about the Barber book is that originally it was meant to be a Dario Argento book. <laughs> uh, so some time ago, I was working on a proposal um, for a book on Argento, and I sort of had about two thirds of a proposal, and I just couldn't crack it as a whole book. It just felt like two thirds of a book, and I couldn't kind of come up with the rest of it. So I was kind of wrestling with that. And then in the meantime, I did a monograph on Danger Diabolic, Mm. which sort of got me thinking more and more about Barber because part of the format for that series, the Cultography series, is you talk about the place of the film uh, as a cult film. And of course, you can't talk about the place of the film without talking about the place of Barber. So it sort of got me thinking about, you know, where does Barber fit into film culture, what is his place as a cult filmmaker, what is his reputation. I got more and more interested in that. And lo and behold, my Argento book um, mutated into a Mario Barber book, um, which with one of the two of the chapters retained some of the same principles and ideas. So, for example, there's a very long chapter about the Jalo, which originally that chapter was going to be about Dario Argento, was going to raise some of the same issues about you know what the giallo is the different ways that term gets used um but now sort of exists as a as a mario barber chapter so there were some things that that didn't carry across particularly well and and had to go um and then there were other things that sort of came up around specifically uh around uh barber so i started the actual writing I started, um, I think, summer of 2019. I, I started the actual writing and then finished it. Uh, well, the first draft I finished sort of beginning of... of uh, my sense of time is completely gone with COVID and lockdown. Yeah, I think we're all feeling that. Being able to remember what happened when, you know, time has passed 
in such an odd way. But I finished I finished it sometime last year. Um, yeah, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, I think I finished but, it kind of at the start of last year, and then it was just a matter of sort of doing revisions and and endless rounds of proofreading. I don't think I've ever done a book mm. that has been quite so thoroughly proofread as this one, and yet I am confident that um, typos and errors have survived that process nonetheless. Well, it's, 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 it's horrifying reading your yeah. own stuff afterwards. <laughs> yeah, it's just those things that have been staring you in the face for sort of two or three years, and it's like, okay, now I see it. Now mm. you know, the actual book is in front of me, and finally I see it. See, I, I understand more about how much I hate that process, so I'm just going to hire a professional to do it for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe the indexing as well. I'm not good with Well, the, the thing is, the thing is that this book actually had two proofreaders. I proofread it, but also there was a professional proofreader. But the problem is a professional proofreader can only, unless they know the area almost as well as you do, there are certain things they kind of can't catch. If you've misspelled someone's name, they may not necessarily mm. know that. Mm. Well, um, yes. I mean, congratulations on the book. Uh, and uh, I just want to say uh, that I, I really kind of, this is one of your older books, but I just really enjoyed British, British low culture. I'm in the area of British film and cult film and B-movies and quota quickies and it was just an amazing book to come to during my PhD uh, kind of opened up this whole world <laughs> of oh, um, film culture uh, yeah it's great um, and mm. I'm looking forward to the new book oh, good now, I always like to hear nice things about British low culture because it's it sort of um I think it flew under every possible radar when it first came out, but sort of seems mm. to have um, sort of lured a few people in over the yeah, years. Yeah, so, no, it has a well, dedicated well, fandom among academics, mm. historians, I definitely. Mean, that's, that's, that's much like the films themselves, I suppose, yes. in some ways. <laughs> nice segue, Adrian. That was nice. Thank that you. was very smooth. If you, um, if you wait long enough, yeah, everything yeah, yeah. becomes reclaimed. Uh, well, I mean, my, my role on these podcasts tends to be that I like to ask the most basic questions. Uh, because I well, often... Because they're also the questions I like to ask. Well, yeah, as well. I mean, I, also, I often try and represent the layman uh, who may be coming to these subjects for the first time, and that's, that layman is often me. Um, so uh, the first question I wanted to ask is that you've done so much, you've published so much on cult cinema, right? Um, but, you know, what, what does cult even mean these days when almost everything is getting a retrospective, a re-release? You know, 20, 30 years ago, you could say cult was maybe a small core of dedicated fans who loved a specific thing. But what on earth does it mean these days? Uh, is, is everything cult? Yeah, well, I, I, actually, I suppose the short answer is potentially, yes, everything is potentially cult. Because I think the problem always with the word cult is that you've got those two different usages of it, which sort of trip over each other. That on the one hand, the sense of, well, it's a way of consuming something, in which case, yeah, it can be anything from Eurovision to Ed Wood to, you know, to Marvel, to Star Wars, to Doctor <laughs> Who, to anything, it potentially can. And then there's that other usage that sort of suggests that certain kinds of films and programmes are kind of more likely to be cult. Um, and so what I've started to try to do a bit more, and I, I sort of try, I, I sort of address this a little bit at the start of this book, is to specify which particular kind of cult are we talking about. 
And with bar, someone like Barva, it's kind of a bit of both. That you know, I think people do consume Barva in a cultish way. You know, he's a filmmaker. People like to collect. They like to accumulate material and stills and different versions of the film, and they post stills and the films on Instagram or Twitter or, or, or whatever. But also, Barva is is an example of a, you know a type of cinema. And we could also talk about things like, you know, Hammer films, Godzilla films, Shaw Brothers martial arts films, films which were designed for a very quick short term commercial payoff and then probably to be forgotten about. Mm. But this small audience get hold of them. Yeah. They've got something that captures this, you know, the imagination. And so they live a much longer life than anybody ever expected them to. You know, they don't, their obsolescence, their built-in obsolescence fails somehow. No, I like that. Their built-in yeah, obsolescence they, they, fails. That's amazing. Yeah, they, they, achieve, they achieve unwitting longevity. Yeah, that mm. is a good, I think it's a great way of putting it because um, it's like the old saying, like a director likes it when their film becomes cult, but the producer really hates a cult film and no producer sets out to make a cult film because no. <laughs> yeah, that means it didn't do well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> didn't make any money yeah i mean that type of cult you know it's often something that you know was like um you know uh, like hammer films you know when hammer films first came out to critics and probably to a lot of audiences it was like oh god yeah another hammer film yeah there's loads of them they're coming out and they're everywhere and and also a lot of people who worked for hammer you know we're always saying things like well you know we never thought anyone would want to watch these films more than once we never mm. thought that you know that they would have any kind of life, um, but you know, lo and behold, how many books are there about Hammer? You know, box sets and fan sites and and different ways people have into into Hammer. So that kind of you know of of, of something that's kind of had its day, and then the cult audience go, oh right, we'll have that now. Yeah. Mm. Um, uh, or you know, it, it and often it's. With some of those films, and I think Barb's an example of this, and Hammer's probably another example, is of, you know, maybe higher up, the producers or the production company or whatever, might have sort of rather cynical, you know, purely commercial, um, might be actually even quite contemptuous of, of the audience. But the people who are on the ground, you know, the Barbers, the Terence Fishers, the, the cinematographers and so on, it's like they do a much better job than they frankly really needed to in terms of the economic job of the film. It's like, you know, they could have made less of an effort in terms of what the film was actually designed to do. But then I think that's one of the reasons why they kind of last, because, you know, you sort of look at Barber films and, you know, the, the, obviously there are flaws in them, as you would expect, given the conditions under which they were made. But their, but their strengths... Um, are kind of still visible there to see. Mm. You know, they still look good. Yeah. They still feel very atmospheric. Absolutely. They're still quite shocking sometimes. Yeah, um, and I kind of wanted to ask you about that. The conditions, because, you know, we're talking about Kill Baby Kill today. And, I, I mean, there, there was really no money, was there? I mean, the conditions no. under which this <laughs> film was made results in, actually, some really interesting, uh, you know, stylistic visual qualities, quite influential ones, too. Um, yeah. So it's kind of, yeah, I just find it fascinating you know, how that, that constraint, so many constraints just enable that kind of creativity. Um, 
and there's just so many beautiful shots uh, and fades mm. and lo lots of really um, sort of labored crash zooms telling the story as well. But like, I really appreciated all of them. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it was something like that. They only had two weeks of money or something uh, and then nobody really got paid. Like it was that that low budget. Yeah, it was. I think it was one of his most impoverished productions. Mm. Uh, I mean, oh. the budgets. It, 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 some of his earlier films got kind of sort of okay-ish uh, sort of money and, and, and resources. Um, it sort of varied a bit. But by this point, yeah, I mean, I think they shot it in about 12 days. Um, the music is pretty much all recycled from other films. There are mm -hmm. some bits of Blood and Black Lace music cues in there. Um, I think there were some things in the script they just never got around to. I think they just ran out of time and money because mm. apparently in the original script, all the victims of Melissa Gratz were going to sort of come back. I think this is the whole thing with the coins yeah. in the chest is to stop them coming back. But apparently in the original script, they would come back as kind of like sort of zombie, uh, sort of undead creatures um, at the end. I don't think that would have worked um, as well. No, it wouldn't, I, no. Uh, because actually, one, one thing I love about the climax of the film is at the end of the day, it comes down to Ruth versus the Baroness. That's kind of what the whole film is. It's like, yeah, the town is sort of overseen by these two powerful women. There's the kind of the sorceress, who initially appears to be a sort of slightly threatening Barbara Steele-like figure, but actually, on the whole, turns out to be a force for good. And then the mm -hmm. Baroness, who's the sort of evil, uh, uh, sort of, you know, Miss Havisham-like uh, ghastly figure in a sort of cobwebbed villa who's kind of making, who's even, you know, about to kill her own daughter mm. uh, at the end uh, of the film. And I think you're right that, you know, sort of a lot of floating zombies, which apparently was what they were planning, probably, Brilliant. you know, might have sort of muffled some of that a little bit. <laughs> Did you ever, in your research, did you ever come across why this film had the name of um, of a Euro spy film? The Italian name is Operazione I think this is one of those Barber films where there's a real weird thing about the titles. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, the original Italian title is Operazione Paura. And the word Operazione was just kind of everywhere in, in film yeah. titles in the 60s. And as you say, associated particularly with, with spy films. And not even just Italian spy films, because, mm. um, I mean, Thunderball was called Operazione Tuona, Operation Thunder in Italy. One of the Christopher Lee Fu Manchu films had got Operazione in the title, Operazione Cina or something like that. But so I, I don't know what the, the motivation for that was, because if people saw the poster, they'd see immediately that it was a gothic horror film. Mm. And the only thing I can think is that maybe they were working on the principle that if you were just through, looking through the listings for what was on, at, you know, Prima Visione or Seconda Visione cinema, and you just saw that title, mm. you might just think, oh, it's a, it's a secret agent film. Um, and, you know, and you've got them in there. You've got the I mean, money. you know, that's it. a great exploitation <laughs> film technique, though. Yeah. Uh, like the old B-movie distributors who didn't even have scripts, they just started with titles and just made the script fit them <laughs> yeah well the, the the wackiest title of all for it is the german title the german title is uh actually i've written it down so i don't because i don't speak german 
so I have to write it down. Die Toten Augen des Dr. Dracula. Wow. Is the German oh. title. The Dead Eyes of Dr. Dracula. It sounds good. So it's, like in, so it's like in Italy, they're trying to make it sound like a secret agent film. In Germany, they're trying to make it sound like an Edgar Wallace film mixed yeah. with Dracula and possibly even a bit of Dr. Mabuza. In America, it becomes Kill Baby Kill, which sort of mm. makes it sound a bit like a sequel to um, Faster Pussycat. Yeah, it does sound like a Russ Meyer title. Yeah, either a Russ Meyer or, or you could have you could have put that title on a Jallo, I think. You know, yeah. Poison Black Lace could have been called Kill Baby Kill. And really the only kind of title, I mean, it's not an exciting title, but it's the, it's the one that at least fits the genre, is in the UK, it was called Curse of the Dead. I um, mean, it's, yeah. It's, um, it works, yeah, but then, you know, I think, virg- I think any Italian horror film up to that point could have been called yeah. Curse of the Dead. You know, I think every mm. single Barbara Steele film could have been called Curse of the Dead. <laughs> so, like, was it uh, was it improvised on the spot? Because I read there was some confusion about this, like Kill Baby Kill. Uh, like, a lot of it is supposed to be improvised, but then, you know, uh, I think some historian came and said, no, it's not. There was a script. <laughs> oh, there was there was de- there was definitely a script. Oh, okay. Um, uh, it was written under the title uh, "Le Macabre Ore della Paura," the macabre hours of fear. Which actually maybe is the title they should have actually stuck with. Yeah. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. By a couple of writers, um, uh, let me make sure I don't get the name. Yeah, Roberto Natale and uh, Romano Migliorini, who also went on to, they were on the writing team for Lisa and the Devil later. I think they also wrote Bloody Pit of Horror, the, uh, the, mm. the Mickey Hargate horror film from a few years earlier so i think they got a bit of a uh, a track record for writing horror and then barva gets a writing credit as well but i suspect that might be where the bits of improvisation mm. come in that yeah barva would probably kind of add his own touches to it um mm. but it sounds like in terms of the general storyline i think they were quite faithful to the script okay <clears throat> Bar- i say barva would probably just add some kind of touches mm. uh, of his own to it. Yeah. Um, I mean, the camera is very good at telling the story as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to say that, you know, as, as, as you talk about in the book, um, Barva was a cinematographer for many years first, and he tells a lot of this stuff visually. And I think with this film, there are some great long passages with no dialogue and just kind of quite visually inventive stuff, which almost feels, it reminds me a little bit of the um, Amicus film, The Skull, where they didn't have a lot of script, so they improvised a lot with interesting camera work to kind of fill Mm. long gaps. Yeah, And it it sort of feels a little bit like that in places. Mm. Yeah, I wouldn't have made that connection, yeah. Um, Yeah, But I I, I kind of, I think less dialogue, more visuals really works here. It works really well. Yeah. It got, I think when people got the, the chance to see it, I don't think it was as widely distributed as some of his other films, but it, it got some really good reviews, certainly in English. Um, it certainly got the best review that Barber got in Monthly Film Bulletin, Tom Milne reviewed it. Um, and, um, you know, I think it was a film that often people could find, you know, all sorts of connections to bits of Cocteau and things like mm. that that they could sort of see 
those kind of parallels, like the the arms holding the torches in yeah. the corridor, which in Cocteau are sort of actual human arms. Uh, yeah. And then I suppose the other connection that I don't think people were aware, well, they wouldn't have been aware when the film first came out because the other film hadn't been made yet, is the connection to Fellini's Toby Dammit, which is okay. the thing that people keep coming back to because mm. Toby Dammit also has a ghostly girl with a bouncing ball. Okay. Yeah, there's, um, <clears throat> I mean, I was kind of, I hadn't actually seen this before. But I was primed and ready to love it because one of my favorite films is Bram Stoker's Dracula. Uh, and he lifts so much from this film. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like those fades that dissolve the edit the editing, the the carriage and the fog. Like there's loads of stuff. Um mm. and the color. Yeah. And there's apparently yeah. apparently it's Martin Scorsese's favorite Barber film. Mm. It's had such a great an influence on uh, loads of directors. Uh, yeah. uh, Dario Argento, Scorsese, Coppola, Tarantino. Mm. Mm. Yeah, director's favourite. Yeah, I, I actually made a student film um, that l- turned out to be a direct copy of one of the scenes in this film, but it wasn't. It was weird because I I don't think I'd ever seen this before I made that film. <laughs> so somehow I'd managed to completely remake a part of this movie. I don't know how. So maybe which, some, which something. Which scene was it? The bit when he's running through a room and he oh, keeps finding himself back in the room. And so I've got a film of me when I was about seventeen doing the same thing and going through this room and finding myself back in the room and leaving and coming back. And so it was did, weird did, when did I finally you, did watched. You, did you? Were you chasing yourself? Did you catch yourself at the end? Um, I can't actually remember how we ended it. It's been a long time since I've seen it, but it was weird when I watched this movie. I thought, hang on, where did I get that idea from then? If I... Well, I wonder <laughs> if you strange. got it from, because you see, I think there are a few other, um, and I don't think any of them were copying anybody else. I think it's a sort mm. of, I think it's a slightly nightmarish idea. It's the sort of thing that happens in a nightmare of yeah. trying to get out of a room and constantly finding yourself back in it. Mm. Um and in, in, his, in his essay on the uncanny, Freud remembers an experience from when he was somewhere in Italy and he got lost and he was trying to sort of find his way again and he kept coming back to the same place, kept coming back to exactly the same spot. And this was sort of, he talks about this was one of his experiences of the uncanny, oh, okay. it's like he was being sort of drawn back. But the other versions that come to mind that have a similar idea, one, and I don't know if this is where it may be sort of, got into your head is the avengers um oh, right. the, there's an episode of the avengers where someone is trying to kill off emma peel and he's built a house the episode's called the house that jack built and he builds a house that's designed to kill emma peel <laughs> by basically driving her mad so that she'll kill herself at the end and so the rooms yeah. all kind of revolve and so you sort of come out of a room and you go through a corridor and all the rooms have moved around. It's a bit like one of those board games from the 70s. And she comes back and she keeps coming back into the same room that's got this kind of TARDIS-like console in the beginning. And this sort of goes on for some time. But I think there's also... Mm. I, I recall there's one of the Nightmare on Elm Street films. It might be part four or part five where they're trapped in one of Freddy's dreamscapes and they're trying to get out of somewhere and they keep coming back into it again. And I might not be remembering this accurately because I've only ever seen it the once many years ago. 
but I seem to remember that they sort of they run away out of the left-hand side of the frame and immediately come back in on the right-hand side of the frame, <laughs> which is also a little bit sort of Hanna-Barbera somehow, but yeah. it's sort of quite kind of disturbing. I seem to remember it was one of the more sort of effective, one of the simpler but sort of very effective ideas in, in the, the Nightmare on Elm Street film. So, like, yeah, <clears throat> a psychological trope. Uh, yeah. Just conjuring that image of the, the uncanny. Um, Adrian, are you going to put a link to that film you made in the show notes? <laughs> I think we I'll, all need to I'll see, see it now. Yeah, okay. I'll see if I can dig it out. <laughs> Excellent. I didn't think you were going to say yes. <laughs> well, well, it's a maybe at this point. Uh, okay. But yeah, well, there's, you're I right. Interesting. I mean, this sort of idea of it being almost like a dream, and you mentioned Freud there, that is something that we see in many of Barber's films. Yeah, I think it's one of the most sort of dreamlike films because, you know, once. It's specifically once you're inside Villa Gratz, it's this weird, uncanny space. Its geography is really strange because the mm. catacombs seem to lead out onto a kind of almost like a mountain top. So it seems to be like a kind of steep fall on the other side. You've got the sort of the bottomless staircase, um, the sort of the endlessly repeating room. Yeah, I love the staircase. I love the, it's great, the isn't spiral it? staircase. Of yeah, the colors it's of fantastic. That. that was so good. Uh, there's yeah, there's so many things I love, and what what I found really cool was um, I was reading about the film, and you know, Bava uh, has this kind of uh, film background, right? His dad was a cinematographer, and he yeah. kind of grew up in you know around silent cinema, and I kind of loved reading about how some of the special effects they didn't have the money to do it but they kind of made it work using maybe techniques you might find in silent cinema, um, like that thing with the mirror. Um, and they just kind of, those, they're kind of special effects. I love that, that kind of link to kind of the special effects in silent cinema. I think it's really cool. Um, and also the, you know, the fact they, they didn't have a crane, so they used this, a sort of seesaw that they made. Yeah. <laughs> like that that yeah. stuff is, is great. Uh, make, make do and mend kind of creativity. Yeah, well, there's the scene with the scene with the swing, the sort of where the, where the camera scene, where initially we think we're seeing Melissa's point of view, when the, you because know, he's obviously using a sort of combination of tilting and zooming. So we, it's like we're on the swing and it's going forwards yeah. and backwards. But then there's this really weird effect where it's almost like the camera gets off the swing. And yeah. we see the swing with Melissa still on it. It's a really, it's odd, really yeah. interesting moment. I say it's kind of like the camera goes, OK, let's get off the swing now so we can we can see Melissa grabs on mm. the swing. I, yeah, it was a bit disorienting. Um, mm. A lot of it is, but I, I really... I kind of enjoyed it, like the characters are talking, it's not shot, reverse shot, they're just walking, and then the camera's panning back and panning with them and panning back, and then we see it through the staircase, and I'm just like, this is, the movement is almost poetic, and I kind of love the way it follows the actors, you know, mm. I kind of love the sort of blocking of it, it was really, yeah, I think that that's the word, isn't it? I should yeah. know, I should bloody know that. <laughs> Lecture in film. <laughs> don't tell anyone there's an element there of time saving as well it's quicker to do a scene in one take than to do several setups of different close-ups and stuff and if he was under very significant time pressures that 
that's another good way of kind of getting stuff in yeah. one go, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, Barva, in many ways, you know, Barva was making kind of a cinema of expediency. You know, as you say, it's mm. like, how do you turn, you know, your disadvantages into opportunities for creativity? Mm-hmm. Um, and also what you said about silent cinema, because, you know, so most of Barber's tricks, I think, in all of his films were tricks that had been around since silent cinema. Mm-hmm. All the kinds of things of, you know, making you think you were looking at a large set. Um, the kind of things he does where he shows people ageing in a single take mm. in uh, Mask of the Demon. He does that, he does it in Vampiri um, by sort of, you know, combination of makeup and lighting. All of that, it was technology that had been around um, for a long time, but he just... Yeah, because of the connection to his father, who mm-hmm. often was actually working on the films with him, was sort of making things for the films. I was yeah. imagine, you know, that, I mean, they have this kind of workshop at home where you know his father was sort of sculpting masks and things like that. That so would yeah. sort of go into the films. Yeah, and his his father made didn't his father make all the statues for um, I think is it Goliath and the vampires or Machiste. And the vampires, which is one yeah. that there's a kind of connection there, and there's loads of these great statues that. So yeah, yeah. they were very busy. Yeah, because he was he was a he was a cinematographer, he was a sculptor, he was a painter. I mean, it, it, it's really an extraordinary family. Yeah, you know, this kind of, mm. uh, and it was kind of like a family trade, really, being sort of passed on from, from mm. Eugenio to Mario to Lamberto to, uh, well, he calls himself Roy Fabrizio, um, who you sometimes see his name sort of... His name was on House of Gucci, in fact. Oh, really? Uh, okay. Roy Barber, oh, yeah. He was wow. sort of in the, well, down the, well down the list in the crew. Um, I don't know... I don't think he's directed anything, but he's sort of... He, he's certainly active in the film industry. So why do you think um, Barber... I mean, there's lots... Obviously, there's a lot's been written um, on Barber, but what's your take on why he wasn't as prolific a director as many others at that time. I mean, there are some Italian directors that were making sort of two or three films a year in the 60s and into the 70s, and Bava was working at seemingly at a slower pace, and I wondered if yeah. you had any thoughts on that. Um, I mean, I think that some of that might have been to do with the fact that Bava was working... Yeah, by and large, Barber was working in cycles and genres which weren't really necessarily the most commercially successful um, in in Italy. I think if the peplum had lasted longer, he might have been much more prolific uh, mm. because the, you know they were amongst the most popular films he did. And horror, really, you know, we think of now of Italian horror as this huge body of films. But certainly in the 60s, it was kind of coming in fits and starts. You know, you might get, you know, five or six films one year and then only three the next. I think in the early part of his career, there was maybe a space for him to be a bit more perfectionist with some of the films. Um, I think that his, uh, there seemed to have been some periods of ill health which which slowed right. him down uh, as well. But yeah, you're right. Compared to someone like Margariti and, and the likes of Fulci, uh, uh, paradoxically, on the other hand, I think that's also made it easier to approach Barbara as an auteur because it's, as, it's like it's a kind of manageable canon 
Hmm. And, you know, you haven't got to work through about 20 or 30 genres. Um, You know, it's closer to half a dozen. And they're genres that are kind of close to each other. You know, his Jally are a lot like horror films. And even Hmm. some of the Peplums have touches of, of horror about them. And I think maybe the other thing that might have sort of got in the way is that I think he was doing, and Tim Lucas charts a lot of this, that he was also doing a lot of uncredited stuff still on, right. on some of the films, of just going in and fixing some of the effects and, and, and things like that. Mm. Yeah. And it's a shame when you look at something like, obviously later on, when he, he had a go at a Poliziotesky film with Rabid Dogs, yeah. uh, which reasons beyond his control didn't actually get a proper release at the time. But then, But you look at other directors like Sergio Martino, who are making sort of, you know, literally three or four Poliziotesky films a year during that period. And it seems a shame that Barber missed his opportunity there. He, If if people had seen Rabid Dogs at the time, he made, yeah. um, made a whole Yeah, bunch. he could have made those films as well as Lenzi and Castellari and, and, mm. and all the others. Yeah, I mean, certainly by the early 70s, he's also finding it harder to find work. Um, because... I, I think probably a lot of people saw him as, you know, he was kind of of the old school right. and they wanted, you know, younger, faster directors. You know, mm. obviously the likes of Martino uh, were coming in and several of his films, I mean, obviously Rabid Dogs had the biggest problems in the sense that it never really officially came out and, you know, virtually went straight to, you know, video about 30, 40 years later. Lisa and the yeah. Devil had those problems of, you know, it only came out as House of Exorcism three years later, and, and a few of his films got sort of held up. Uh, so, so it's it's. I think it's easier to explain what was going on in the seventies, um, you know. And I, I think he was kind of seen also as sort of slightly out of fashion with um, you know some of the other films, you know. Although, as you say, Rabid Dog shows that he could have done different kinds of films. Yeah. I know there were other projects he was trying to get off the ground, science fiction films, and, and um, there was a, a Jallo set in outer space he was, he was trying to sort of get together. Uh, wow. But, uh, yeah, I think it was becoming... And, and the one which I think we have to be thankful that he didn't do, which was Baby Kong, which just always sounded absolutely terrible. <laughs> Baby Kong. Yeah, one of the many kind of intended... Unfortunately, Dino De Laurentiis, I think, stepped in and just... Same same thing with Queen Kong, you know, that that De Laurentiis said, nothing with Kong is going to happen, you know, in in the next few years. Wow, that would have been fun. Um, There was something you mentioned earlier. I wondered if you could just expand on it a little bit in case anyone isn't familiar with what that is. You, You said Prima Visione. Uh, yeah. talking about sort of Italian cinemas. I wonder if you could just expand a little bit on the sort of three main, like, different types of cinema and what that was all about. Yeah, the Terza Visione, the third-run cinemas, um, which I always imagined would be sort of comparable, you know, in some ways to kind of like the Grindhouse cinema or, the, or you know, it would be a rowdier experience, basically. Um, and Wagstaff talks about how there would be certain kinds of films that would be almost designed for this audience where you'd have to have certain things happen every so often. You know, this is a kind of a distracted audience who are not necessarily going to have the patience uh, to sort of follow a complex plot. So, 
you know, you might have to have some comedy, some sex, uh, some violence every so often to kind of mm. get them to, to look at the screen. Right. People would arrive, you know, halfway through the film, they'd talk to their friends. Um, you know, it was often a very, a very social kind of uh, experience. And I sometimes wonder if Barber's films, which, as I say, you know, they did, most of them did get shown in Prima Visione cinemas, but often there was an expectation that certain kinds of films, you know, there was a prestige to opening in a Prima Visione cinema, but with certain kinds of films, an expectation that they probably make most of their money in the Seconda and Terza Visione cinemas, because actually that was literally what happened with Hercules in 1958, which was sort of the beginning of what we might call Filone cinema, of cinema of lots of long cycles of, of films. Uh, because mm. Hercules opened in Prima Visione cinemas, but and it was the biggest box office film in Italy of that year, but most of that money it made in the second and third run cinemas. That was the audience that really kind of made that film. Uh, the mm. success that it was. So I suspect the expectation was that even if, uh, you know, a horror film or, or you know, some of the, the less prestigious jally opened in a Prima Visione cinema, they were probably thinking, well, they'll, they'll probably do better in the second and third run cinemas. And therefore, you know, maybe they had to be calibrated so that they kind of looked good enough that they could play in a Prima Visione cinema, but have like enough happening every so often that you could also work, you know, play to that rowdy audience who are mm. not necessarily going to be sort of fully attentive. It's sort of like we're back to the idea of the cinema of attractions. Yeah, it is a little bit like that. <laughs> and, and and I think that's where, you know, that kind of, you know, offers a possible explanation for some of Barbara's films that they... Yeah, they look really good. So they, you know, they look like they could stand alongside certainly medium budget films, um, but they're also eventful. You know, something happens every so often to kind of hold your interest. <laughs> would like to thank Leon Hunt for coming onto the podcast today to talk about Mario Bava and uh, Kill Baby Kill. I think it was a fun film to uh, to talk about. Yeah, it was really fun. I and, really enjoyed um, it. Yeah, I think we're we're in danger with the podcast of becoming a little bit like the Graham Norton show with uh, all our guests coming on. I don't think we are in danger of becoming the Graham Norton <laughs> show, Adrian. I think it's a yeah. fundamentally different brand yeah i'm just thinking of all the, all the plugging we're letting yeah. people do but hey it's all good um yeah so i hope everything goes well for him with his book and i'll put a link in the show notes to um where people can find that if they want to 
Um, that's basically it. Anything you want to plug that you're? I um I haven't done anything for, for <laughs> I haven't done anything recently. So no. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, none of none of us have. No. Uh, all right. So what do we have next month? By the way, we have James Bond, don't we? Uh, yes, I hope so. Yes, that should be good. So yeah, so join us for some very mainstream chat. Yes, we're, we're getting more mainstream. We're selling yeah. out, Adrian. I know. Maybe that means we'll um, attract some listeners. Maybe. Some, some new listeners, I don't know. <laughs> um, but yeah, anyway, thank you everybody for listening. And um, you can contact us in all the usual ways, Twitter, email. The links are all in the notes. And yeah, so that's basically it. Till next time. Thank Till you for next listening. time. Bye. Bye.